Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast on Psalm 22. I'm so excited to talk about this psalm and its prophetic significance because I think it's remained a conundrum for many Christians, me included, and it's particularly poignant to discuss it during Lent. The first time I actually learned about the additional significance of this psalm was about 15 years ago in a Bible study. My instructor had studied in Israel under a number of different rabbis, and he explained that what had been misunderstood by countless Christians was understood by our Jewish counterparts. Kevin Saunders, my instructor, explained the significance of Psalm 22 and the strange words that Jesus said at the ninth hour of his crucifixion. I tell you, my world was rocked. I don't know why I didn't know this before. But what I have since come to realize is that not all biblical scholars understand the connection in the same way. So I'll try to give space for both points of view in this podcast series. First, we'll start with dissecting Psalm 22. We believe David wrote at least 73 of the 150 Psalms, and Psalm 22 is one attributed to him. It was written about a thousand years before Jesus was born, which, as you start to read the psalm and understand what he's talking about, becomes so eerily prophetic. In the psalm, David is describing things that he himself has not and will not experience. It is a prophecy of what Jesus will experience at his crucifixion. While I personally have never thought about David being a prophet, King David is actually called a prophet by Peter in the book of Acts. And this designation as a prophet is not a stretch when you consider so many of David's psalms actually are prophetic in their descriptions of the Messiah and God's future kingdom. It seems that many times God used David's poetic talents to deliver amazing prophecies about Jesus and his kingdom, and also prophecies that have yet come to pass about the end times. It's interesting because I never thought about David as a prophet per se, but again, when I reflect on the Psalms and the fact that God ordained that these Psalms be included in the Bible, it's evident that David really received prophetic wisdom from God. Peter, as I mentioned, and then later Paul, both talk about the prophecies of David. According to gotquestions.org, there's at least 25 different psalms that make a messianic prophecy. And this starts with Psalm 2. Verse 7 from David that says the Messiah will be God's son. It makes you wonder if David truly knew and understood what he was writing, especially when he's writing Psalm 22. Or was he merely reflecting on his own misery, but then his words became even more true and prophetic because they were God-inspired? 
That's a question we can ask David when we meet him in heaven. I actually have a list. And on that list of questions to ask David is, David, what was up with that whole Bathsheba thing? What were you thinking? Let's take a look at the psalm. As I read it, you're going to hear that Psalm 22 begins in despair and the experience of David feeling abandoned by God. Perhaps it's symbolic of the abandonment that David felt during various times in his life when he was being unfairly treated by King Saul, for example, or being pursued by his enemies. But the psalm moves from despair to unimaginable hope. The psalm ends with the conversion of the pagan nations. In other words, Psalm 22 ends with conversion of all families on earth. What a glorious promise of hope. Make note of how much this psalm also points to what the gospel writers told us about Jesus' suffering, death, and then resurrection on the cross. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if this first line sounds familiar, it's found in the New Testament Gospels of both Matthew and Mark. They recorded Jesus saying this as he was hanging on the cross, nearing death at the ninth hour. Did God really abandon Jesus? Was this a cry of true abandonment or just a reference to this psalm and in a way, a secret message of hope to his followers. We're going to explore this in the podcast series. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Worm here is not to be taken literally, but instead it means something lowly, neglected, hated, defenseless. David may have felt this way at times, but it seems to refer to how Jesus was treated. Isaiah the prophet also prophesies in Isaiah 52, 14. He will be so marred in his appearance that he will no longer look like a man. So in other words, Jesus became something lowly and despised and unrecognizable. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Now, David perhaps felt this way, but we can't help but make the connection in Matthew twenty-seven thirty-nine, when he says of Christ while he hung on the cross, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. David's psalm continues, let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 29 through 32 says, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, 
You are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The psalm continues, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Biblical theologians feel that David was not speaking about himself here. He always did have an advocate like his friend Jonathan and honestly most of the people of Israel. So when David writes, for trouble is near and there's no one to help, it seems once again this refers to Jesus as recorded in Matthew twenty-six, fifty-six. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Ironically, the Bible tells us that just a few hours earlier, this group had said that they would die for Jesus, and now they are gone. Truly, there was no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. All right, let me explain the bulls of Bashan. That's not really a familiar term. According to the Bible, uh, and actually I looked at BibleReference.com, Bashan is the part of Israel we now call the Golan Heights. But at a time, during uh, the time of David, this was an area where wild bulls roamed, and they were very ferocious, and they would band together and really surround their victim, and then they would pounce on their victim. The metaphor actually directs us to another one of David's psalms, Psalm 2, verse 1, where it says, why did the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? And it also reminds us of what the gospel says about the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the other Jews, Herod and Pilate, who honestly could be compared to wild bulls in the way that they circled and fenced in Jesus. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. We actually don't know how many lashes Jesus received in the courtyard prior to being hung on the cross. The traditional maximum was 39, and this was determined by Jewish law because it was thought 40 would kill someone. Now, did the Romans ignore this law and give Jesus more than that? We don't know, but some scholars feel that Jesus may have received more since this decision to flog him was before the decision to crucify him. So the punishment may have been particularly violent. So roaring lions that tear their prey may actually have described what happened to Jesus's flesh because of these violent lashings. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. This is a prophetic description of what many biblical theologians believe 
would have happened during a crucifixion. The body would have been stretched on the cross to the point where your bones would actually be dislocated. But for Jesus, no bones were broken, either in this psalm nor in the text referring to Jesus' death on the cross. And this is an important point because it was the fulfillment of the prophecy in yet another of David's psalms. Psalm 34 verse 20 says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. John tells us in chapter 19, verse 33 of Jesus's death, but coming to Jesus, when they saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs, which actually was tradition. This was also for the Passover celebration when they were eating the lamb. The law was, they shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. And remember, Jesus became that Passover lamb with his death. David's psalm continues, My heart has turned to wax. It was melted within me. Now, this is a strange metaphor, but we now know that when a person died on the cross, they actually died from asphyxiation, which means dying from basically not being able to breathe. When hanging on the cross, inhaling was actually not as difficult as exhaling. According to the medical account given on Christianity.com, to exhale and you were on a cross, it would require lifting the body by pushing on the feet and then flexing the elbows and pulling the shoulders inward. And in order to do this, all of Christ's weight would have been focused on his feet, which would cause searing pain. According to BibleReference.com, we learned from the Gospel of John that Jesus's sack around his heart was pierced after his death, which caused water and blood to pour out. So this metaphor that David uses of the heart melting may actually be describing the sword thrust through Christ's organs. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. A pot shirt is a piece of broken clay, like a pot, and it's a metaphor really for being without strength. It's lifeless as a broken piece of pottery. It's worthless. And so we can only imagine the thirst that Christ must have felt at this point. John told us that scripture was about to be fulfilled and Jesus was near the end of his life and he said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, what scripture was to be fulfilled according to John? Well, this psalm, Psalm 22, and also another of David's psalms, Psalm 69, verse 11, which stated, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This is what occurs in the gospel. At the declaration of Christ's thirst, 
the soldiers raise a sponge soaked in sour wine, basically vinegar, to Jesus's lips. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Clearly, this is a prophetic vision of what happened to Jesus on the cross when they pierced his hands and his feet with nails. We're later told when Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to that apostle Thomas, he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch and see. This is interesting. Crucifixion was not invented by the Romans. It was actually invented by the Persians about three or 400 BC. It was the most painful and excruciating form of punishment really ever contrived by man. Women were never crucified. The word excruciation, word origin is actually linked to crucifixion. It was a word to explain the unbelievable pain and torture experienced during crucifixion. The nails that were used for Christ's hands and feet would have been made of heavy iron, probably square, seven to nine inches long. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. John's gospel described the casting of lots for Jesus's garments. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. And again, they're talking about Psalm 22, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, this is interesting. Here we have dogs, lions, oxen. Before we had oxen, lion, dogs. Uh, in the Bible, a lot of times they use this. It's called a chiasm, and it's just sort of a, a mirror image of what was said before. According to BibleReference.com, this passage is symbolic of probably great pain in David's life. But also it literally describes the suffering of Jesus during his crucifixion. When David says, deliver me from the sword, well, it is true. David's foes carried swords. But in regards to Jesus, the sword might have two different meanings. Again, it might refer to the power of the Roman government to execute a criminal or literally the sword that ran through Jesus's organs to make sure he was dead. When David says, my precious life, in this verse, it translates to a Hebrew phrase, meaning my only one. Well, that was used in the Old Testament to refer to Abraham, who was to take Isaac his only one from his wife, Sarah, to offer him as a sacrifice. And it could refer to David's life. He only has one, but also prophetically to the life Jesus was offering for our sins on the cross. 
Jesus made his body as an offering for sin. And Isaiah 53 verse 10 and 12 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and through the Lord make his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Mention of the power of the dog refers again to David's foes, most likely, but also to those who crucified Jesus. In ancient days, dogs were seen as sort of these pack scavengers who attack the vulnerable. And similarly, Jesus's enemies banded together to strike the vulnerable, Jesus. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. Here, David is saying that he'll praise God in all public places and shout his name to all who would listen, which David definitely does in his Psalms. And we need to be ready to tell our salvation story to all who would listen. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. I think this phrase here is so important because David is saying that God does not abandon us in our hour of need. This is important as we interpret Jesus's first words of this psalm. And we might be tempted to think that God really did abandon him. We'll talk more about this in our next podcast, but keep this in mind. We're reminded in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through 11. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. David's psalm continues. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Here we go. Those last phrases are so prophetic. This was the information David wanted to share with everyone. This is the message Jesus wanted to share with his followers as he lay dying on the cross. The message was, we win. I will defeat death. The reason why he came into the world will be accomplished. He will raise triumphantly. All knees will bow at the mention of his name. Posterity will serve him. So, 
First, think of David, the psalm writer. The feeling of abandonment at the beginning of the psalm. Again, I think we can all relate to. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is what we call a desert experience. We perhaps all have a dry season where God does seem very far away. But of course he isn't. And we know this is just the enemy trying to make us feel abandoned. But again, it's no less frightening and depressing. Now, there are two different schools of thought about why Jesus says on the cross, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Was Jesus momentarily abandoned by God as he took on the sins of the world? Or was Jesus merely referring his Jewish followers to Psalm 22, which describes his suffering but also ends in the prophetic good news about his resurrection and the future of all nations serving him? Remember, David's last line is, he has done it. Tune in next podcast to find out what the various biblical scholars and faiths have to say about this. In the meantime, rest assured that the Lord will not abandon you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8.